standard issue for all women. Hello and a big welcome to you to this week's Sunday Chops. There's a football final on today. Are we in it? I don't know. Recording this as I am in the past. But what I can say is, however you're spending your day today, I hope you have a good one. And you've already made an excellent decision in listening to this podcast in which I chat to Lauren Livesey about Anne Bronte for too long dismissed as not quite as good as her sister's. When in fact, what she wrote was remarkable in too many ways to go into in this introduction, but we do go into in the podcast. Lauren is the events officer at the Bronte Parsonage up in Haworth in Yorkshire, and she really knows her stuff. An important thing to say here is that it's very difficult to discuss Anne's most famous work, The Tenant of Wildfell Hall, and its major themes without spoiling it for anyone who hasn't read it. But given you have literally had your whole lives to read it, we decided to talk about it anyway. So be warned. I had a lovely time chatting to Lauren, even if she is Team Emily, and I hope you enjoy it too. Hashtag Team Anne forever. Hashtag Team Bramwell, hashtag to a much lesser extent. First question, it must just be absolutely incredible to be watching the parsonage come back to life after being shuttered for probably the first time in its history. Absolutely, it's the longest period of sustained closure since the museum opened. You know, it stayed open through World War Two. You know, we've had uh, members of our curatorial team going in, keeping things ticking over, keeping an eye on things. But the soul of the building in some ways comes alive when you've got the people there. So having it sit vacant for so long has been really, really peculiar. So now that we are slowly coming back out and we're welcoming people back through the doors, it's just such a wonderful feeling. It really is. I joined BritBox recently. I was talking about this on the podcast so people will know this. And I saw that To Walk Invisible was on there. So I watched it again. It ends with that little boy running up the path and it turns into the 20th century and I thought I'm so glad I didn't watch this during lockdown because I think it just would have been so depressing to see everyone just (laughs) rootling around in the gift shop and know that that place was closed. So we're going to talk about Anne Bronte, 200th year celebration since her birthday in 2020. An exhibition opens on the 1st of February 2020 and within a matter of weeks, you were closed. And there's something about that that seems oddly fitting because I don't think fate was kind to any of the Brontes, but Anne in particular seemed to be shit out of luck. Can you tell us a bit more about the early parts of her life? Anne is the youngest of the Bronte sisters. She was born a couple of months before the family moved to Haworth, where the parsonage is that everybody knows. And she's the only one of the sisters who didn't go away to the horrible school that ended up proving to be the death of the two eldest girls, Mariah and Elizabeth, when they were 10 and 11. So she never really left home for the longest time. She was referred to as kind of being the quiet one, poor, lovely Anne, meek little Anne. So much of what we know about Anne is is funneled through the prism of her sister Charlotte's remembrances of her I don't have sisters but I've spoken to a number of people who do and if you're the little sister and the person who's responsible for telling the world who you are 
is your big sister who always kind of went, oh, poor little girl. Mm. You're probably not going to get the most fair hearing. And that's not to say that, you know, there's this real tendency in the past several years to kind of pit the girls against one another, particularly Charlotte and Anne. And I've, I'm not here for that. I'm not about that. Yeah. But I do think a lot of where we've placed her in, in culture and our remembrance of her is very shaped by Charlotte, who did see her as being younger and sweeter and kind of running along behind the rest of the family, you know, wait for me. And that's not really all that accurate when you actually go back and look at her life, when you go back and look at her work. She has got this level of bravery, level of clear sightedness and the ability to distill a simple truth down to the words where you just go, that's what I've always thought. How did you do that? How did you crawl inside my head and make those words make sense in that way that is absolutely fundamentally true, but I never quite realised that before. Mm. I always think that if Anne had been around today, she would have been an activist. She would have been somebody who used her voice to speak out. And, you know, she wasn't cowed by society being set up a certain way so that people should or shouldn't say things. You know, she would speak truth to power. She's the Bronte that I would want to meet. In your material for your exhibition, you say it shows how her legacy has been shaped by others. And you've kind of hinted that when you talk about Charlotte. So can we talk about the early years after her death and the role that Charlotte played in editing Anne's work and Anne's legacy? Anne released two novels during her lifetime. The first was Agnes Grey, and that came out at the same time as Wuthering Heights. And the tendency at the time was for books to be released as what they called triple deckers, so three volumes that went together. Mm. And that was because circulating libraries and the way publishing worked was kind of set up to support that, that method. So... Agnes Grey was literally chucked on the end of Wuthering Heights. And I adore Wuthering Heights, but it is not the best palate cleanser for Agnes Grey. You know, <laughs> Wuthering Heights is gothic and, and out there and, and loud and passionate and everything is turned up to 112. And Agnes Grey is quite a slim volume. It's quite sober. It's very realist. It's a very different story. So it wasn't set up to succeed from the beginning. You know, everybody kind of read Wuthering Heights and went, oh, my God days this was something whether it was a good something or a bad something people couldn't really figure that out but they were just so shell-shocked by Wuthering Heights that Agnes Grey was just kind of there too and it didn't help that it was a story about a a girl leaving home to become a governess that was following hot on the heels of Jane Eyre Mm. which did the same thing but again turned up to 11 there's a woman in the attic and there are the night and there's a fire and there's bigamy and you know it kind of just sort of followed along the same path but it wasn't shouting as loud it's been reassessed by a number of kind of scholars and critics and there was a scholar in the 20s who called it the most perfect piece of fiction in terms of what it does and the the structure of it it's just a wonderful and it's a really angry book as well I reread it. I told you yeah. when we were talking about doing this interview, I told you I was going to reread The Tenant of Wild for a Hole. And then I thought, I don't really need to do that. I've actually read it quite recently, whereas I hadn't read Agnes Grey for 20 years. It contains a bit in it that I identify with harder than any other Bronte novel, which is the bit where Agnes goes to visit Ashby Park. And she thinks, and I'm paraphrasing here, well, this place is amazing, but I'm never going to tell them that. And it's just such a chip on your shoulder thing. That would have been me. Yeah, I mean, Agnes Grey is one of those books where you, you think about the the received pop culture wisdom around it and then you look at the actual texts and you go, well, one of these things is not like the other. So it, it's sort of viewed as this 
pale attempt at a Jane Austen comedy of manners. And it's really not. It's mm. an angry, angry novel. You know, Agnes Gray is a woman who goes out into the world because her family have effectively made some really bad decisions mm. and she needs to support herself. And her sister and mother are going, oh, but you can't possibly do that, Agnes. No, you're the little girl. You can't possibly do that. And Agnes is like, well, I've got no choice. You clearly aren't going to look after us. And you've got to wonder how much of that is. I'm reluctant to look at biography and, and put that at the heart of what the Brontes chose to write about. Certainly, I don't think Anne's sisters appreciated what she could do. It's a really angry novel of Agnes going, well, I've got to do this and I will. And dealing with these these employers, these people who are foul, foul creatures, really, just trying to make her way through and live as best she can, as honestly as she can. You know, there's a, there's a moment in the middle of it where one of her charges, a little boy, he's just foul, and he, his uncle and father kind of encourage him to be cruel to women because women aren't important. And, you know, he is the master of all he surveys. He is the master of the animal kingdom and he can do what he likes to animals. And he's torturing this little nest of birds, mm-hmm. you know, content warning here. It's, it's really quite violent. But what Agnes does is she knows that he's been torturing these birds. She knows they aren't going to live. She crushes them with a stone. That's not a sweet, genteel comedy of manners. You no. know, that is a woman going... The world sucks. The world was not made for me. I need to take this decision so that the world is going to suck slightly less for some people around me. And it's going to be unpleasant. But I think it's an astonishing book. But it kind of got lost with Wuthering Heights to return to the earlier topic. The Tent of Wildfell Hall came out months later. You know, Agnes Grey comes out in sort of December, November, December 1847. And by the summer of 1848, The Tent of Wildfell Hall has been released. That's a very different book. It's still got that kind of female anger at the heart of it but it's a sensation absolutely sensational everybody loves it people are talking about it it sells out really quickly there's a lot of talk in the press about well is this appropriate you know should people be talking about this and the idea that Acton Bell which was Anne's pseudonym might be a woman was starting to kind of percolate and she writes this incredible preface to the second edition where she effectively goes you're yelling at me for telling the truth. Yeah. I'm never going to apologise for that. And if you are starting to suggest that this might be a woman and therefore I shouldn't have written it, there is nothing out there that a woman can write that shouldn't be appropriate for men to read. And there's nothing out there that a man can write that a woman shouldn't be allowed to read. So really, shrug. This is me and this is my truth. And she's just amazing. And it sells incredibly well. It's just as successful as Jane Eyre and Wuthering Heights. Within a year, Anne is dead. And the content matter of the tenant deals quite heavily with subjects that were close to the personal life of the Bronte so things like alcoholism and later instances of the book were suppressed by Charlotte out of an attempt to protect Anne's reputation and legacy and also the family legacy she didn't want people looking too closely at Bramwell so people weren't able to access this book traditionally so new versions of the book were released but they didn't have the full text. They were just willy-nilly cut pieces out of the text. So for years and years and years, you know, literally over 100 years, sections of the book that were doing the rounds weren't the full text. They miss out some incredible sections about Helen thinking about what it means to be a mother. They miss out the, the kind of framing narrative, which is that, that Gilbert is sending this volume of letters and diaries to a friend of his to kind of look over all of that's missed out they they completely sort of decimate the text and that's the book that's that's laid out to the public and then people pick it up and go oh this isn't very good well 
No, it's missing 15% of the content. <laughs> Anne really was unlucky in that the further and higher Charlotte and Emily stars flew, Agnes Gray and, and the tenant just didn't keep up with that, partially because they were suppressed and they weren't out there. And also, I think, because Wuthering Heights and, and Jane are, are incredible stories to read, but they are what happens if you dabble with a bad boy. And, you know, obviously, Kathy, spoilers here, Kathy and Heathcliff don't really end up together, at least in life. <laughs> I'll refer you to our previous podcast that we did with exactly. you, Lauren, about whether or not that's actually romantic. Spoiler alert, it's not. Exactly. But Jane and Rochester, you know, certainly is, is couched as being hugely romantic. And, you know, Rochester has got some real issues. There are some real issues with the power dynamics in that relationship. Whereas Anne writes the tenant and she goes, okay, you find this rake, you find that, you know, reformed rakes make the best husbands, you find this guy who looks to be bad news, you've been given absolutely zero education about what it means to be a wife, what it means to be a mother, what it means to deal with all of these scandals and traumas that society dictates that you don't even understand what they are prior to marriage because you can't be told. You, you're sent out into the world without the, the tools to make a proper decision the decision is made and then you live with it for the rest of your life. And she's writing about what that actually means. This guy seemed really lovely and really sweet. I was an intelligent, well-read woman and as far as I could be. My aunt said, this might not be the best idea. I went ahead and did it anyway. And oh, he's a foul, abusive, drunken man who is taking my child from me and turning him into something I don't recognise. And I have absolutely no legal right to speak out against this, to say anything, to assert myself. And if I do make, you know, take any measures, I will be breaking the law. That isn't as easy to distill down into a three-piece Saturday night drama as Jane Eyre is, and it's not as slick and sexy. It's going, this is what happens when you make a bad decision, yeah. and this is how you extricate yourself from it. Which I think is why, you know, when we came to the 1970s and we had second wave feminism, when we started looking back at 19th century texts with a more critical eye to look at how women were treated and what women were trying to say, which I think is why it, it had this renaissance and rebirth. And scholars did a great deal to go, we're reading the wrong edition here. You need to go <laughs> back and find the right text. And Anne's star has, has kind of been on the rise over the past several decades as people start to, to look at her again and go, yeah, maybe, maybe when I was 14, I loved Jane Eyre. I loved Wuthering Heights. But now as an adult, now as someone in my 30s, now as somebody later in life, now as a new mother, now as who's maybe had relationships where I didn't feel that I was treated properly, now I read this book and I go, oh, yeah. It's just phenomenal to think about that. That's funny you say that because when we came to see you last time, you've got badges in the gift shop that say Team Charlotte, Team Anne, Team Emily. I picked a Team Anne one, but you said that you were Team Emily. And I said to Mickey that I was going to ask you again to see whether time had done anything. Because it seemed really clear to me when I was rereading Agnes Grey, the reason that I picked Team Anne. And it's something you've just hit on there. And I think it's age. Because I read Jane Eyre when I was probably quite young. I would say about... It, 11. It's my mum's favourite book, so my mum gave it to us and I loved it. It spoke to me because I was a little girl who was more clever than people gave me credit for and all of that stuff that, that Jane Eyre speaks to. And, you know, I was working class. I read Wuthering Heights probably a couple of years later, but it probably wasn't till I was about, I would say, 
16 or 17 that it suddenly you know because it's just so wild and I mean wild in every sense of the word that that kind of correlates with what happens to you as a woman all consuming everything is wild and passionate what Anne does is she writes about things that are like you say they're adult topics if you look at someone like Weston and you compare Mm -hmm. him to Rochester and Weston is nice that's probably the overwhelming thing you would say about Western and kind and considerate and decent. Decent. Why wouldn't you want that? Why would you want something that was what so many other Bronte heroes are? I mean, yes, people are complicated, but Jesus, he's diminished in the eyes of he's the boring one. And you think, do you know what? I know a lot of women who had boyfriends that were were Rochester and now they're with people who are Western and they're way happier. I think it's interesting what you say about I've always loved Emily from being really, really young. And Wuthering Heights is and I think always will be my favourite book because there's something about it that just kind of defies description and defies you know I'd love to be able to sit and give you a reasoned kind of rationale for why I love the book so much but it kind of escapes language I'm not able to go Mm. much further beyond it's just so good but the more time I've worked at the parsonage the more I've just grown to adore Anne and I think The Tenant is possibly my second favorite book and she seems to me to be the most fully and this is probably what I'm projecting on her but she seems to be the most fully realised person of the sisters. And I think what's really, really interesting to possibly an awful lot of women out there is, you know, all of the Brontes deal so well writing about female rage. Kathy is not scared to tell you when she's hacked off. She will rip a pillow apart with her teeth. She will scratch you. She will tell you. Mm. Jane Eyre. Jane goes into the Red Room and that changes the rest of her life. You know, you've got Bertha as this kind of exemplar of what happens when female rage is uncontained and the ways in which society at the time is able to contain it. And Jane has these moments with Rochester where she's bantering and she's throwing back at him the the thing that you would most want to say in that moment. So they are women who kind of have a, a harness on their rage and use it and aren't judged for it too much. Whereas I feel that Agnes and Helen in The Tenant are women who have to work within the constraints of a world that will not allow them to be angry. Yeah, And it doesn't mean that they're not absolutely livid 80% of the time but they found a way to to navigate that world to still speak out when they have the 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 capacity to do so but that they are dealing with structures that are not built for them and will never be built for them and that to me I think is something that I've become more and more aware of on my rereads and that I still see those structures to some extent in the contemporary world and and the ways that it's not set up for women. I think Emily is a better writer, as in her way with words is just so glorious. Like in her poetry, it's just, she's just incredible. But I think Anne hits way more interesting subjects. And the interesting thing is that when you read The Tenant of Wildfell Hall, yes, the law has changed. Yes, a woman can get out. And yes, a woman can have access to her children so that situation shouldn't in theory still exist and yet it does because it's way more complicated than that and I think that's what's really interesting because that brings me to the question of Bramwell because there's a lot of talk about Bramwell amongst scholars many years ago I read Daphne du Maurier's book about Bramwell he's cited by different people as the inspiration for different characters throughout the sisters writing but to me 
and I say this as someone who grew up in a house with an alcoholic, nothing seems clearer to me than the conversation that Helen has with Markham about keeping her child away from alcohol. Because what I'm saying is, it's also really complicated. He basically says, if you don't let this child have temptation, how is he ever going to grow up to be a man? And Helen's argument is, why would I risk him being one of the people who fails to resist, who fails? And I think you see Bramwell because it's not just that he was a monster. It's that he was a human being that she loved and she couldn't save him. And I think that's so clear in in her writing. Can we learn a bit more just for anyone who doesn't know about Bramwell and his woes? Absolutely. Bramwell was the only boy of the Bronte siblings. He was the fourth born, the second eldest once they got into kind of adulthood. What kind of I think is really important is thinking about their father. Their father, Patrick, had come from a working class farming background in Ireland. He had been expected to achieve very little in his life, but he was a remarkable man who was driven by just a thirst for education and he managed to educate himself sufficiently that he got to Cambridge and was ordained to the Church of England in the early part of the 19th century. So there's this idea that he can go from working class to middle class, maybe even upper middle class in some ways. Bramwell should be able to be prime minister by the time he's 30. The expectations are really, really high on him. And that's because his sisters and his father loved him so much. They thought, well, you're amazing. You're incredible. You can do all of these things. And as a young man, he was a, certainly a very, very intelligent person. You know, but he was he was book smart. There's a story that the local barman used to call Bramwell to come down to the pub if they had somebody coming in from out of town. And because he was just he could talk to anybody. He could talk to anybody. He could tell a story. His party trick was that if you gave him a sentence in English, he would translate it into Latin with one hand and Greek with the other simultaneously. He was ambidextrous. He could do that. And he decided very early on he wanted to be an artist. And he set out into the world to try and do that. His father um, ensured that he had tuition in arts. And Bramall wanted to go to the Royal Academy. And we don't really know what happened because with so much of Bramwell, because his behaviour is falling short of the standards that are acceptable, nobody puts it to paper because they don't want it to be written down and accessible mm. to others. So it's all kind of hushed stuff that happened in the background. So we don't know if he went to the Royal Academy and failed out. We don't know if he never made it there, if he went down to London but just didn't have the nerve to go in. We don't know if he got to Bradford to get the train and just spent his money and got drunk instead. Nobody knows what happened. But he tried to set up in Bradford as a portrait painter it didn't work. He tried various different things. And he just seems to have come to the conclusion that, oh, God, I was a really big fish in a really small pond and everybody thought I was amazing. I can't handle going out into the world and finding out that there are other people who are amazing, too. Mm. He didn't have the family connections that a lot of people did have at the time. You know, he was wanting to be a portrait painter. He didn't move in circles where he could access people who had enough money to pay for a, a portrait submission of them. He just he was constantly not quite meeting the standards that his family were expecting of him. So he started to drink more excessively. Um, he started to take laudanum and um, opium, which were easily accessible from the, the pharmacy at the time and which were considered to be creative drugs, you know, Coleridge wrote Kubla Khan in an opium haze. There's this idea that it's unlocking your creativity. It's an acceptable thing to do. He spent some time working as a tutor in various places and got him a job working as a tutor for the same family that she'd worked for for several years. That didn't end well. (laughs) Yeah. 
Because See, the boy she of... had no luck. She had no luck she had at all. no luck. But the boy of the family had reached an age where he couldn't be taught by a woman anymore, mm. despite the fact that, you know, Anne knew just as much as Bramwell did in most subjects. She couldn't teach him anymore because it just wasn't the done thing. She brings Bramwell in to work at, as, as tutor to this family, and he starts a, with a relationship with his employer's wife, an older lady named Mrs. Robinson. Uh, <laughs> again, we don't know for certain that that is what happened. We read between the lines and we're pretty sure that that is what happened. Anne leaves employment there because she just can't, you know, she's worked there successfully. She's the only member of the Bronte family who leaves home and finds a job and sticks at it. She didn't enjoy it, but she spent five years working away from home. My favourite story about Anne is that, you know, she had her first job as a governess. It didn't go really well. She was let go. She decided she needed another job. So she advertised and she offered her services for double the amount that she was being paid previously. And she got it. Mm. Oh, that's that's Anne in a nutshell for me she always knew her worth she'd set up with this family where yeah it wasn't ideal she probably wouldn't have wanted to be a governess but she did it because she knew she had no choice then Bramwell comes in Hurricane Bramwell and kind of leaves everything on the floor but Bramwell is let go from from this job we only really have a, a, re- a reference to Anne writes I think in her prayer book where she says I'm sick of mankind and all its disgusting ways which is at the time that I think it's the day that Bramwell comes home. So he's been found in a compromising position with Mrs. Robinson and he just, he falls apart because for him, for Bramwell, there was love there. He genuinely thought that this was the woman of his dreams and Mm. they would be together forever. And he kind of built it up in his head that the reason we can't be together is because she's married. Curses be upon her husband. We can't be together. But one day I I will keep true. I will keep constant. And he finds out one day her husband has died. And he's just like, you know, glory, hallelujah, everything's going to come true for me. Everything I've ever dreamed of is going to happen. He's bombarding her with letters. You know, he's in in Haworth. Mrs. Robinson's in, just outside York. And eventually, after days and days and days and weeks of him not hearing anything, a coachman from the estate turns up in Haworth and he's like, she's sending for me, isn't she? And the coachman says, stop writing to her. Here are all your letters back. She doesn't want to hear from you anymore. And within days, she's married again to a baronet. And the very strong implication there is, mm, you were okay to dally with, but yeah. you ain't married material. Yeah. And he just fell apart. And drinking and alcohol and drugs just absolutely undid him. And when he, he died, he was the first of the siblings to, to die in adulthood. But until very late, of tuberculosis, but until very late in that summer, they didn't realise he had tuberculosis because his alcoholism was so... Mm announced that it was masking all of these symptoms and it finally got to the point where a doctor discovered it and he was suffering from alcohol withdrawal if he stopped drinking the strain on his body would have killed him but if he kept drinking the strain on his body was going to kill him so he really had nothing that he could do he he's this this young lad here who was meant to achieve great great things and he, he came to nothing his last words were that you know he'd achieved nothing in life and he was painfully aware of that and as well you know it's the son of the curate the one man who's meant to be yeah thing you know that the judgment must have been really Mm. hard to deal with i have a huge amount of sympathy for for bramwell i have to say probably more than most not just because like i say i perhaps have a better understanding of alcoholism but also i think he's the perfect example of why gender inequality sucks for everybody not just for women because society wasn't just telling his sisters that they shouldn't and couldn't achieve. It was telling him that he was the one. 
and the pressure of that. Part of the reason why they did actually set out to write eventually was that, you know, if things had gone down the path that was expected, Bramwell would have had to look after his sisters for the rest of his Mm. and their natural lives. You know, they never seemed to have expected to marry. And, you know, by his mid-twenties, it became quite clear that Bramwell could barely look after himself. He certainly wasn't going to be able to look after three women Mm. on top of that. And Charlotte and Emily and Anne made a sensible economic decision, which was, let's try publishing. You know, we've tried being governesses to greater and lesser degrees of success. We're thinking about opening up a school, but we don't really have the connections. Let's have a whack at publishing. But, you know, while society tells us that we need to find a way to survive, it also tells us that there are certain things that are and are not acceptable for women. So we can't publish under our own names. You know, Emily wouldn't have wanted to. But Charlotte and Anne might have been happy to publish under their own names, even though they acknowledged that the receipt of their work would be very different if they announced themselves as female. And it was that kind of economic truth that that Bramwell couldn't help them, that led them to kind of make forays into publishing. But yeah, Bramwell is is very much an example of toxic masculinity. You know, he, expectations were set on him. He was unable to meet them. And he had no model by which to process that, by which to deal with that. You know, he was, he he just kind of wilted under the pressure and it killed him. Mm. You mentioned earlier about how it's quite complicated to make The Tenant of Wildfell Hall as a three-part Saturday night drama. And I agree with you, but I don't think that's a good enough excuse. And I'm interested because where are the Anne Bronte adaptations? So Wuthering Heights and Jane Eyre have been made over and over and over and over again. And I'm not complaining because if they didn't keep making them, I wouldn't have got to see Fassbender be Rochester. (laughs) But surely now in a you know I hate the expression post me too but here we go surely now a point where where we are there's been one that I know of which is the Tara Fitzgerald version of the Tenant of Wildfire Hall which was three parts and I think it was I think it was the 90s maybe the late 90s never Agnes Grey surely now is the time for us to be looking again at her work and adapting it i think so yeah i mean the tenant is difficult to to adapt in a number of ways you know it's the bible and religion are very much at the heart Mm -hmm. of the novel in a way that the modern audience kind of shy away from we don't we're made uncomfortable when people are talking about faith you know Mm -hmm. most people nowadays in our kind of coolly agnostic way of doing things so for a woman to do something because she's driven by her faith we don't really understand that we want somebody on a moor you know, screaming about their love. That, that's easy to understand. But a woman going, no, my faith in Christ tells me to do this. We we can't conceive of that the same way. And, you know, this is going to be a big spoiler warning if you haven't read The Tenant. But, you know, she escapes her husband. And at the end, she finds out he's dying. And she goes back and she nurses yeah. him. And... I'm going know, to use that word again. It's really complicated. It's really complicated. complicated. Yeah. And you could make an argument, and I've heard it made, that that is not a useful thing to put out there to women who are fleeing from abusive situations, that you should go back and that is the right thing to do. Mm. You know, there are instances of of abusive men feigning injury or distress and saying, well, you're the only one who can fix me, love. So, yeah, complicated. 
I think even when we're dealing with complicated situations and, and things that are traumatic, like, you know, being in an abusive relationship, we have this kind of pat idea of how it is meant to work. You leave him, you don't look back, you go away. It's fine. Maybe he comes after you, but you'll be OK because you've got away now and your helpful new boyfriend will help. You know, we still mm. rely on a man there, but yeah, it's not done that you go back and help him out. And, you know, Helen goes back and she kind of tries to help Huntington find Christ, find God and to die in in faith, which, you know, he does. And, and she goes on with her life then. But that is, I think, hard to wrap your head around. I think we do like things that are easier to, to synthesize and to look at and go, well, this is simple and this is the path it follows. But now that we are getting to be a bit more experimental with 19th century adaptations and, and, and historical adaptations, I really do think there's some interesting things that you can do. And there are an awful lot of films that have been released over the years that are dealing with the exact same themes mm. as The Tenant is. You know, plenty of sort of thriller noirs from the, the 40s were doing this. Some of the stuff that was coming out in the early 90s was dealing with the exact same sort of thing. Mm. So I, I definitely think there are ways to do it. It's just that we're so much at a point now where everything needs to be proven as an adaptation and I think people taking a chance on the tenant might be a, a tricky thing to do but I hope to god we get to see it and where is Agnes Gray yeah where is my Mr Western on screen <laughs> I've got Fassbender I've got Toby Stevens I've got Orson Welles I've got Timothy Dalton with Heathcliff I've got Tom Hardy and Ray Fiennes and all the rest yeah but where's my Mr Western where's the just a who is your Mr Western do you think I don't know and this is not for want of thinking about this, I won't, <laughs> I, won't, I won't say that much. But Mr. Weston is just, I mean, the way that she realises that she loves him is because he's nice to her dog. And don't we yeah. all want that? I've read enough romance novels over the years to know that if your dog likes the guy, if he if he takes to him, that's proof that he's a good one and you should keep him. And, you know, Anne was doing this in the 1840s. Yeah. You know? We do deserve a Mr. Weston on screen, I think. Yeah. I feel quite strongly about that. So tell me, people can come to the Bronte Parsonage to see the Anne exhibition. You've got quite a lot of Anne-specific stuff out. I know you've got her last letter, which is one of the saddest things I've ever read. What else can people be looking at at the Parsonage? We've reopened. We've got an exhibition that is dedicated to Anne, um, as Hannah mentioned earlier. It opened last year on the 1st of February and within six, just over six weeks, the museum had to close. We're not letting Anne miss out on her year in the spotlight. So we've extended the exhibition until the end of, of this calendar year. And it's called Amid the Brave and Strong. It kind of looks at Anne, looks at who she was as a person and looks at the ways that her legacy has been shaped. So you can find all kinds of things about her. You know, we've got the last letter that, that Hannah referred to, which is, I think, my favourite thing in the collection. And it is heartbreaking because it is a young woman. She's not even 30. Mm. She's been given a death sentence. And I know that we're used to films and operas showing tuberculosis and consumption as sort of, you gently waft away and you get very thin and frail, but you yeah. look beautiful. Yeah. Dying of tuberculosis isn't like that. It's horrible and it's painful. It's nasty and it sucks. And she was in the last six months has seen her brother and her sister die of this disease. And she knows she's got it ahead of her. And instead of doing what anybody in that situation would do, which is go, why me? I've lived a good yeah. life. I don't want this to happen. All she is thinking about is this is going to be really hard for Charlotte and my father. 
I need to do everything I can to make sure they're okay. I mean, she's just, again, like Weston, she's a decent yeah. person. And she'd seen how much it hurt Charlotte and her father that Emily refused any kind of medical help or intervention. So she submits herself to second opinion after second opinion after second opinion. She's wrapping herself in red hot linen cloth. She's drinking mercury. She's doing these horrible things, not because she thinks it's going to help her, but because she knows she needs to make her sister and father feel like they're doing something. And that must have been heartbreaking because even if you might have come to terms with the fact that your life is probably over, that grit of hope each time where you think, well, maybe, maybe, must have just been so difficult to bear. And she writes this letter to her sister Charlotte's best friend, effectively saying, we're going to the seaside because the change of air might be good for me. And Anne has loved the seaside from being years younger. She was taken there on holiday with the rest of the family that she was governessing for, and her happy place was Scarborough. She prevails on Charlotte to let her make the trip to Scarborough one last time, and they bring Ellen with her, with them. Ellen's Charlotte's good friend. And this letter to Ellen is Anne asking her to accompany them. And it finishes by saying that she hopes that Charlotte will find in Ellen a sister in her stead. And Anne talks about how she's come to terms with what's going to happen. She wishes she could be spared, but, you know, God's will will be done. But she wants to be spared because she's got schemes and ideas in her head. Yeah, that's the thing that I find really upsetting, that whole I could have done more. That, yeah. and, and yes, I'm sure everybody probably feels that on her deathbed, on their deathbed. But she was 29 and she could have done more. It's, yeah, it's really so heartbreaking. Much. It's Yeah, it's, it's just so upsetting to read. At the end of it, she goes, but God's will be done. Remember me respectfully to your sisters and mother. And you can literally see Anne sort of go, pick herself up and sort of deep breath and inhale and go about the rest of her day. And it's just for And one of my favourite other stories about Anne, I probably had about six in the course of this recording. Um, <laughs> they make their way to Scarborough. She's on the beach. And Anne always loved animals and animal rights. And she would really take you to task if you weren't looking after your animal. They're on the beach at Scarborough and there's a little boy dragging a donkey around to offer it out to rides for the local people for a penny a go. And she's following this little boy going, has that donkey got enough water? Has that donkey got enough food? <laughs> she's, she's literally hours from death and she's still making sure that the donkey's okay. Yeah. You know, she, as somebody who is held up as being sort of meek and quiet and wafting off into death and just being sort of this doomed quiet sprite Anne was uncompromising you know the things that were important to her she would not break she was very polite she didn't want to make anybody feel uncomfortable but if something struck to the core of her as being essential then she wouldn't move from it and that is the sort of quiet strength that I don't think gets enough appreciation in so much writing and that she's able to, to express so well Absolutely agreed. Lauren, thank you. This has been super interesting. Everyone get to the Bronte Parsonage. If you've got your kids at home, you know, I know everyone's had their kids at home the whole year, but now you can actually do things and go out and take them places, take them to the, especially your little girls, take them to the Bronte Parsonage. It is a brilliant place.
Yes, please do come. We are open. Free books tickets only at the moment, but you can head to our website and and, uh, book your ticket. Once you're in and you've bought your ticket, it's valid for the next 12 months. You can come back as much as you like. The exhibition we've got on about Anne is amazing and it will really give you a new insight into her. We've also got new art exhibitions that kind of respond to Anne and respond to this last year that we've had. And yeah, please just do come and visit us. If, If we're staying at home this summer, it's a great place to come. The Village of House is beautiful. It so is. Have a yeah. time. You can go up onto the moors. You can do the full Bronte. Please do come and see us. We've got loads of events happening as well online. So wherever you are in the world, you can log in and you can join us for our Women's Writing Festival. Fantastic. That's great. Thank you so much, Lauren. Thank you. Standard Issue. For all women.